Right now, I have been on full-blown maintenance mode. Plus, whatever holiday gluttony is in store, it's going to be a lot. So I am planning on coming into the new year clocking a few extra pounds. Come January 1, I am starting another round of fat cutting and want you to join me. A quote I live by is ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. That's Samuel Beckett if you didn't know. Getting in shape, whether that's losing weight or improving what you are already doing, is definitely easier with a community. So I am hosting an accountability forum where you can see how I prepare to crush it in 2021, and we can all fail better together. I will be doing almost daily posts and interacting with the Fail Better members on my American Glutton Marco Polo channel while we work out, meal prep, and do this together. Real time and real accountability. Signing up is super easy. Go to our website, AmericanGlutton.net, and use code FAILBETTER2021 for a discount when you sign up before December 15th. I'll see you all January 1st. Hi. I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. Today on the podcast, I have been looking forward to having Dr. Terry Walls on the podcast for a long time. Dr. Walls is a functional medicine certified practitioner and a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa. She is the author of the best-selling book, The Walls Protocol, and a premier expert in treating autoimmune conditions with diet. Dr. Walls herself was given a diagnosis of MS and told she'd have to spend the rest of her life in a wheelchair. After radically transforming her diet, her outlook, and her medical care, she is able to walk and ride a bicycle. Please enjoy our conversation. This is great because I I came to know you because my wife had um, high RA numbers. Oh yeah, and so I don't I don't know exactly who mentioned your book to her, but she you were like the first go to. She went, she read your book, she followed your protocols, and it was like miraculously helpful to her. Wow. Um, so that's how we came to know you uh, through autoimmune. Um, but my audience is almost entirely just hyper-focused on weight loss because that's... Oh, weight loss. Yeah. So, that's so that, that works up. well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because so really, people lose weight without being hungry and that's usually quite desirable. <laughs> yes, exactly. Nobody likes to be hungry. You know, um, and actually what I'm doing right now is uh, I do alternate day eating. So uh, it's uh, intermittent fasting, uh, and that means that I get to be hungry a lot because, you know, if after uh, 36, 48 hours of not eating, people generally have a lot of hunger. But, you know, it's interestingly, you know, after doing this now for uh, several months, uh, it actually feels uh, quite comfortable. So I, I uh, in the periodic fast, and, I, and I've done periodic fast where I do a week of not eating, every month. And, you know, the first time you do that, that's really quite uncomfortable. Right. But, you know, by the third time you've done it, you're hungry, but it's, it's uh, actually quite comfortable. And my kids and my wife are like, 
yes, you know, your hair is getting grayer, but you keep looking younger. Right. And I think that's because of when you do these stems, these periodic fast, it causes your bone marrow to release more stem cells into circulation. And so that, you know, leads to younger looking skin. And of course, more importantly, younger blood vessels, younger heart muscle, younger liver. And what I particularly like is younger brain. Right. And so, you know, eventually, you know, I'll go back to uh, aging, uh, although, you know, aging more slowly. But that's certainly the the benefit for people who, who want to go on the journey of intermittent fasting or periodic fast is yeah, that you and can that's, slow down the aging process. That's from a, from a standpoint of health, that's really like, I, I come to these things from different angles and I talk to people who, who enter this space because they were having some ailment or an issue uh, or, or health um, indicator was out. And then for me, health was not the priority initially. It was very much like I wanted to fit in a coach seat on an airplane, or I didn't want to have to have an extension and talk to the stewardess or the the flight attendant every time. I I didn't want to always have to check the strength of a chair before I sit down, or I, you know, I didn't want to be sweating on cool days. It was these things that that led me there first. And now health is a major factor for me and sticking around and being healthy with my kids. You know, and being healthy for our kids, because, you know, the things that, that we will do for ourselves, you know, we'll, we'll do stuff, but we'll do the really hard things for our children. Right. Um, We'll do the things that take a lot of work and planning and dedication and we'll do that for our kids. Uh, and so when I'm working with uh, my patients and I'm asking them to do these radical things, you know, eat vegetables, learn how to cook, uh, and really begin to shift their daily habits, I, I understand that that's a huge, huge ask. And for people to be willing to do the work to make the, that happen, they have to be, you know, have a, a huge amount of personal desire. And those who are parents, you know, when I ask, okay, what do you want your health for? Nearly always it's, I want to be there for my kids. I want to see my son uh, at his graduation, or I want to walk my daughter or my son uh, down the aisle at their wedding. I want to do the father-daughter dance at her wedding. I want to do the mother-son dance at his wedding. And that, you know, for that, we will do hard things. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 wild how that how that works. Um, well, you know, and I think our ancestral mothers and fathers who weren't willing to do that, they didn't have very much success in rearing their offspring. So those genetic variants all keep dying out. It's those ancestral mothers and fathers who would be willing to do really hard things because they they had that deep parental bond. Yeah, those people had offspring. That had more offspring, and those so that those are ancestral mothers and fathers. And so, what what how does how what role does inflammation play in that space? Oh yes, well you know inflammation is like profoundly important, um, and we're beginning to understand this more deeply 
you know, when I went to medical school, we, we thought disease was driven by genetics. You got the wrong genes, you're going to have disease. We'll figure out the drugs quickly and get you fixed up. Uh, and then we're so excited about doing the sequencing for the genes that we now have the keys to the kingdom. And we get the sequencing gown, and it's, you know, that didn't explain why people became ill. And now we understand that you and I, we have about 25,000 genes, but these genes get turned on and off uh, in terms of uh, how they're working by our lifetime of food choices uh, and environmental exposures in that uh, although we have many different disease states, you know, uh, you, you're talking about your, your wife's rheumatoid arthritis, but we, we now know, even though we have lots of disease states affecting many organs, at the cellular level, nearly all these diseases have some really common features and inappropriate high levels of inflammation is one of them. So we know that, and it's very common, and of course the autoimmune diseases that occur affecting many different parts of your body, but it also occurs in mental health issues, anxiety, depression. It occurs with diabetes, with being overweight or obese. It occurs with high blood pressure. It occurs with learning, a lot of learning disorders. I, and so the other thing that's really pretty funny, when I got focused on using food as medicine, and you know, we saw how, you know, just how effective that was, my partners at the University of the VA were beside themselves because they said, you know, they, they pull in and say, Terry, you cannot use the same approach for every disease. You just can't do that. And I go, yeah, yeah, no, that, that's, that's true. I, but I'm not really treating disease. I am treating cells. And they go, what? So, you know, our cells all have mitochondria. They all have cell membranes. I'm just trying to be sure that they have the building blocks to take care of the mitochondria and their cell membranes. And, you know, then I have to watch for, you know, what happens if I have to reduce their medications, if they begin to get better. I mean, I don't know that they will. I'm just focused in on the cells. And people thought I was a nut job for quite a few years. Um, but now, uh, because we've had so much success in our clinics at the VA and uh, in my research at the university, now my partners here at the University of the VA think I'm this brilliant visionary. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's so cool. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. At some point, I think people were making decisions because hunger was such a big issue, and and not to, not to make light of hunger, there are still people. Who we have die so many people who are uh, food insecure here in the U.S. now. Yes, um, and, and uh, around the world, um, certainly the economic crises and the coronavirus has added to the food insecurity. So I, I have my heart uh, goes out to them. Yeah. So I I, I can't. I can't look at where we arrive with the abundance of cheap calories and be, begrudge anybody who yeah. thought that was a good idea. But then we also run into this issue where you're going to get gas and you're confronted with more calories than you need for a week that you could stuff in your pocket for a few bucks. Yeah. 
the U.S. Uh, you know, saw the depth of uh, hunger around the world. And we naively thought if we could just produce more calories. And so uh, we created an agricultural policy to subsidize the production of corn uh, and wheat. And so we produced more calories. But globally, the biggest problem isn't calories, it's access to calories. And access to calories is, is really a political and an economic problem. Uh, most often, it's uh, all over the world. It's political instability prevents farmers from being able to grow their food uh, and sell it. And here in the U.S., it's more political and economic. And unfortunately, we, we created a system where healthcare didn't, didn't really talk about food uh, at all and quality of the diet. And we a food system that produces calories, but doesn't care at all about health. Right. And so we have this consequence of a healthcare system that treats disease, but doesn't know how to create health very well. And a food system that creates calories at the expense of health. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's creating an economic disaster for the country. Right. Yeah, it's almost like those two things should be totally harmonious, and yet they're utterly divergent and, and not even talking to each other. Correct. It, it, and um, that solution is going to be difficult. Um, uh, it'll, it would take some time for the country to tease that out. Ideally, what we would do would be to uh, reduce the subsidy of calories um, because that didn't, didn't work out very well. And instead, think about uh, health and redesign our food system around how we create more health. The elimination of high glycemic index foods that are subsidized by the government uh, would be really helpful. Uh, and, and I realize on a policy basis, uh, those kind of transitions would have to be phased in because you'd have economic turmoil if they were abruptly brought in. But if we could have a, a, a policy system, and of course, this gets ever more complicated because we created a political system where money can flow in without limits to influence the political discourse, which will make making these kind of policy changes um, profoundly difficult. Right. Yeah, it, it, it is so complicated. Okay, yes. On the other well, hand, yeah. you know, I... I I'm very optimistic. We have we have we have, we have some good tools uh, in in that we have these radical people talking about food, talking about health, talking about all the things that are under our control individually. Uh, and so, you know, I, I write books, um, I give lectures, I teach the public, I teach clinicians. I, I'm I'm thrilled that to have this chance to do the interview with you because it's going to take too long for the government to get around to fixing this. So we have to all do all that we can to educate ourselves and those of us who are part of the solution, educating the public is, is the solution. Yeah. Now, I, th I, I, I think of the government as a big lumbering thing. So I, I, I'm not going to sit around and go like, as soon as the government solves this, we're all going to be good because their solutions are like oh, giant mallets just smashing things. Their solution was subsidize corn and wheat and everybody will be fine. 
Presumably, we, we want our government to be driven by science and to be, you know, thoughtful in their policy and to try and shift things to help uh, the common good. And and it, it will take them a while to sort all that out. Right. And, you know, my, my son is now into politics. He's a state senator and bless him and all the other state senators and politicians who are helping us to try and navigate that. And, and we need them. But we also uh, will be doing all that we can to help our own family and to educate our friends and family and those who want to learn that there are a lot of things that are under our control that will make it more likely we can control the inflammation, uh, uh, Im- improve the health of our cells, and improve our health overall. What are some What are some foundational things that we can change that are that are maybe not super, uh, not the most radical version of what you yeah. espouse, but like easy fixes? Well, so, um, so we'll sort of go through the easiest things okay. uh, and, and maybe the most profound. The first one I want you to do is realize you have choices. Right. Um, it, and if we realize that between every event in our life and our response to it, there's a tiny space. And in that tiny little space, got to make sure everybody can see that. There's an opportunity for me to make a choice, and I can make a choice that I would like my children to make someday. So yeah, the first choice that I was thinking about is life's not fair, but you, you don't give up. You just keep doing the best you can. Right. Okay, that, that's a choice that we, we can all remember is that I, I'm going to just keep trying to do the best I can for myself and my family. And then another choice you could make is that every day, I'm going to be grateful for something in my life. I'll have take a moment to have some gratitude. And so we've added a ritual to our, our meals as a family is, what's one thing I can be grateful for today? And I could have more than one if I want. And that moment of gratitude helps calm my cortisol, helps calm my inflammation. So, so far, I haven't asked you to give up any of the, any anything. Right. I've just asked you to do a couple of things that are... These are almost just perspective shifts. These are perspective shifts. To to remember that you have, you still have control and you can take little actions and start with little things that you can achieve. Um, Other things that we know that are really, really helpful is vitamin D. And biologically, we can make our own vitamin D. Right. But we have to be outside in sunlight to do that. And so if you, can, if you can, go outside, get a tan, don't get a, burn, a sunburn. Sunburns increase your risk of skin cancer, but uh, work on getting a tan. Now, I live in Iowa, so it's now pretty hard to tan because it's uh, in December. So during the winter, you either have to go south and get a tan or take vitamin D supplements. And the, the reason many scientists think that influenza and cold viruses are much more prevalent during the winter is that our vitamin D levels fall because we're not outside getting a tan. Therefore, the science also tells us that if you take vitamin D supplements during the winter, that's also quite effective at lowering the risk of influenza. And it appears to lower the risk of cold viruses. And we know in the coronavirus, there's very nice published research that if your vitamin D is in the top half of the reference range, you're much less likely to need the hospital much less likely to uh, need the ICU and far, far less likely to die of complications. So those are like some really easy things to do. Go outside, get a tan, get fresh air, or take vitamin D supplement. 
Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Now we're going to get to things that are a little bit harder. I don't mind hard. I like hard. Okay. So eating more sauerkraut and kimchi. Um, we, we know, uh, we have several uh, research studies that tell us if we have a healthier microbiome, have more of those back, healthy probiotic bacteria that live in sauerkraut and kimchi, also living in our gut, in our small bowel and large colon, that we have a healthier immune system balance. And we have, I could talk about Tregs and T uh, helper cells, suppressor cells, that gets a little bit confusing. But just know that your immune cells do a better job of protecting you from the bad guys and not hurting you. Because if your immune cells get too wound up, they can be in damage, damaging the body. And I have an autoimmune problem, so I'm, I'm very acutely aware that immune cells gone amok, in my case, wreck my brain. So I, I, I pay a lot of attention to immune cell balance. And there's some, again, very interesting study that looked at environmental factors, dietary patterns uh, cross-sectionally, and then looked at rates of hospitalizations for COVID and death rates for COVID, and case count for COVID. And those societies that eat a lot of sauerkraut and eat a lot of kimchi have far lower rates of influenza, of COVID, of COVID hospitalizations, of influenza hospitalizations. So I'm eating, you know, kimchi and sauerkraut every day. Okay, uh, so do, you, do you prefer kimchi and sauerkraut to like a probiotic pill? Oh, yeah, much better. It's, okay. it's much more potent. Okay. And the benefit of getting the uh, sauerkraut is it's a fabulous source of vitamin C, which is also really good for you on a whole host of disease states, including a lower, you know, greater resistance to influenza, the coronavirus, and viruses in general. It also looks like it's really good at lowering the risk of autoimmune issues uh, and improving health overall. So a cup of sauerkraut or a cup of kimchi has, I think, about 750 milligrams of vitamin C. So great source. Let's start with just a forkful. And uh, as you get used to the flavors, I predict that you'll find that you uh, really come to like that a lot. Yeah, I love that stuff. I love that stuff. And it took a while to develop the taste like, but oh my goodness, I I just love that. Uh, The latest pairing that I've come to enjoy is smoked salmon. Uh, and my uh, sauerkraut, that's just, you know, uh, really very, very nice. Yeah. And of course, we, I'm German, the German ancestral uh, mothers and fathers. And so uh, we also like brats. Uh, we have to be careful to get brats that don't have any gluten in them, but we like brats and sauerkraut. And that's also another very, very delicious uh, meal to us. Yeah. So uh, more um, fermented vegetables. Uh, and then more vegetables in general are... Ancestral mothers said, eat your vegetables. And so getting more vegetables uh, in every day, fabulously good for you. And a good way of thinking about that is on your dinner plate, half of it should be vegetables or three-fourths. And a fourth of it uh, should be your protein source. And in, in my dietary plans, we have strategies for those who are vegetarian and vegan for their spiritual beliefs and those who are meat eaters. Oh, wow. Um, because I, I, I certainly recognize that for some, uh, being a 
a uh, vegetarian or vegan is a very important spiritual practice. And so we, we don't want to uh, dishonor that for them. That if you're open to eating meat, there's certainly uh, uh, many benefits from eating meat. And so that's my preference. But again, it can be done as a vegetarian or a vegan. And I will get, should we get hard now? Let's get hard. Yeah. What is it? The really, the really tough part. Well, if you look at, again, if we look at addiction science and we look at both the animal and the human models, what is the most addicting compound? Is it heroin? Is it alcohol? Is it tobacco? Or is it I, I don't I don't know. I've I've had issues with all of these things and so I've been become a professional at quitting stuff. Well, but I, I don't know what out, is actually the worst. Biologically, we have a very intense craving for sugar. And in the animal models, uh, the various animal models for addiction, the most addicting compound is sugar. And it's a high just, glycemic diet. Does this just mean that the animal will will repeatedly go to this despite they'll, they'll some consequence? Correct. They'll repeatedly go to it. They will starve. They will uh, exclude everything else. They will choose sugar over the other uh, addictive compounds. And so, and then, you know, complicating all of this is that, you know, humans, we, we are just so creative. We are, and we're so competitive that as we uh, evolved uh, into societies, we you know, began to create businesses. You know, and I'm an entrepreneur, and so I, I think it's, you know, I, and I like being an entrepreneur. It's, it's very good. We learned how to create businesses using addicting compounds and design compounds that we crave, and we go through withdrawal if we don't uh, consume them. And so we have social media products that uh, create addictions that uh, reinforce being sedentary. We have food products that create addictions that reinforce the consumption of calories at the expense of nutrients. And that leads to obesity and declining health. So it will be a profoundly beneficial strategy if you can get rid of the added sugar and get rid of the processed foods and learn how to cook. And you can get my book. I have a little more prescriptive things about getting rid of gluten and dairy but if you'll if you will begin to learn how to cook and get rid of the sh- added sugars in processed foods, it'll be a profound health journey. In my clinics, we have cooking classes because we recognize that many of us we we've been so pressed for time that we fell into fast food yeah. and we fell into packaged food and we forgot how to cook or never learned how to cook. And many, many young people don't know how to read a recipe, don't know how to cook. And they are, uh, you know, they have, will have profound health challenges as a result. You look at all the, some of these old movies from the 60s, 70s, even 80s, and you would see the home ec classes where they're yes. learning how to cook. I, I don't believe that exists anymore. I was never taught to cook in school. I learned to cook because I became interested in cooking. You know, our uh, school did have uh, some uh, basic culinary classes. Unfortunately, some of the things that they taught them to cook were like macaroni and cheese using a box. Like, dear God. <laughs> so uh, that was a bit uh, distressing. We, we need to go back to that. And 
You know, I've been talking in my community about helping churches, temples, synagogues, mosques to introduce cooking and gardening as part of the religious education. And I've been going to schools, the same kind of concepts. We need to teach children about food, about cooking, about why to do it at all levels, as as much as we can. You know, and ideally, regulate advertising of food products to children so that you cannot target children. Yeah, and there's something really interesting about that, especially when you tie in the religious aspect, because when I think about any of those big religions, I think of the food associated with them. I think about a big Christmas dinner or a Passover dinner or a Ramadan feast or these things. These things are all like beautiful and elaborate. And I I just see what, what we seem to have done in society is blunt everything with with doses of sugar or doses of fat, but not a lot of flavor. Well, as, as I said earlier, we're very clever as a species. We know how to create products uh, from our entrepreneurial side uh, and how to create, and we're rewarded when we do that effectively. So over time, the companies that were most effective at creating these addicting products became the most successful. And that has led to some you know, very negative health consequences. And that appears to be happening uh, quite universally. And uh, you know, it's part of when I uh, teach my courses to the public uh, and to uh, health professionals, we talk about evolutionary biology and why what we know about how our brains are programmed to work, what things we will increase, what we will avoid, and why. Because I want people to understand that because then it makes it easier to to forgive yourself for the struggle. Like, okay, biologically, I get why this is so hard for me. And then I, it helps people understand how to make the struggle easier if we understand our um, pressure points biologically. And then how to make that environment uh, more successful. If you just think like, okay, change your diet and go home like, okay, well, that's easy. And you're perennially uh, struggling because even though you want to change your diet, that's a very hard thing to do without a deeper understanding of what are the steps that you can do to make it easier and how to blunt uh, the addiction and the withdrawal symptoms. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Yeah, well, I I really, really like what you were talking about when you talked about this small window to recognize choice and that you have a choice because it is is really one thing to spend a huge amount of time figuring out how to move from effect into some kind of a causative state. And it's not, I think, super genuine just to tell somebody to figure it out. You know what I mean? Like, just be better. I don't think that's helpful. It won't work. Yeah. It it won't work. And and physicians, we were guilty of that for a long time. And, you know, I'd see and say, okay, you're you're overweight, lose weight. Right. (laughs) Well, that's not going to work. Or you're uh, overweight, change your diet. Yeah, or eat Uh, less. Follow follow the diabetic diet. Well, hell, that's not going to work. Or, you know, stop smoking. 
Then you go home yeah. like, okay, well, that, that's oh, occasionally you can do that. You know, I have to admit, my my dad. This was the in the nineteen sixties, early sixties. The first Surgeon General's report, you know, uh, about the harm of cigarette smoking. So he's a smoker. My mom's a smoker. You know, I am probably uh, nine when this uh, report comes out. My dad quits smoking. My mom is still smoking. My dad quits. I am still in awe that he read that report and he decided that he needed to do that for his for his family. Right. Like, oh my goodness. So occasionally people can do that. Yeah. The, va- the vast majority of us need a lot more help than that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. It is it, it's not impossible for a person to exist that can be presented with some data and make a significant change, but I just I I think it would be tough to try to sell that to everyone because I don't know that it's help. It's not help. Not everything is going to help everyone in equal ways. Correct. Now, the reason my dad was so successful, you know, he was a dad. He had three young children and he saw it as his responsibility to stay healthy, to see his children grow up. So he you know, took advantage of that immense internal motivation and that immense one between every event and our response to it is a tiny space. He made the choice like, well, I got to be here for my kids. And so this is tough, but I'm going to do it. And he managed to do it while his wife was smoking in front of him. Like, oh, my God, what, what, what resolve? Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I also wonder, for me, the decision to change, to have a goal physically and to, to get to it, it, it didn't come from my parents worry about me, my friends worry about me. It really was this happenstance where I met a girl and she didn't have this worry about me. She just cared for me. And that gave me the sense of feeling of of worth, I guess, if that's the right word, to want something more for myself than I had. And and so it becomes tricky for me too in in a day and age where we have these groups who are about body positivity, which I really want to support because I think people, not everybody proceeds productively from a state of kind of fighting against the system. And so I think it sometimes takes that being uplifted about yourself and having some self-worth to then go out and make a change. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, th- there is a challenge. Um, when I look at people who have major weight challenges and a lot of criticism over fat shaming, and I think I, I, I'm gathering that's part of what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I've lost almost 300 pounds. So it, it was a very m- impressive. massive yeah. weight loss, yeah. And so we have the psychological harm from fat shaming, and then we have the biological harm from all of the hormonal effects of that severe weight that the volume of fat cells that are producing all those inflammatory cytokines, that will have a profoundly negative health consequence in terms of a shorter lifespan and much greater vulnerability towards uh, the influenza and now the coronavirus. And so I, I certainly want all the individuals who have and of course, now in the U.S., it's probably a majority of us who are over ideal body weight. 
and uh, increasingly uh, increasing numbers of us who are uh, obese or uh, very very obese and then have these hugely inflammatory cytokines that are going to shorten our life and may also have on top of that fat shaming uh, and the severe psychological stressors that may be part of their life as well and how to best help them to lower the inflammation, lower the psychological, psychological uh, trauma. And, and I'll confess, I certainly don't know the solution. Some of the steps that I would encourage them is what we've already been talking about, yeah. recognizing that the, between every event in your life and your response is, is a space, and to begin to make choices that you would want to see your descendants make. So you're, you're being more positive and then learn how to cook so that you could begin to prepare food that is not so high glycemic index. So we're reducing the carbs, getting rid of the added sugars. And so that we're having, you know, sufficient protein and more non-starchy vegetables. And in, you know, in my clinics at, at the VA where we ran the therapeutic lifestyle clinic and in my clinical trials, People who are overweight or obese, as they implement our program, the weight just begins to melt away. And people aren't hungry. They discover that their energy is steadily improving. Their uh, weight is coming down. And, you know, ironically enough, in my, uh, all of my uh, research studies, people lose, lose weight very rapidly if they're overweight. And if you're ideal body weight, they're not losing weight. But if you're overweight or obese, they're losing weight very rapidly. And I would have to file a safety report every three months with my IRB. How, um, who's losing weight? How much weight are they uh, losing? Uh, has anyone become underweight? And we're notifying their personal physician that they've lost. The person is losing all this weight. It's a common side effect from our uh, study, but please evaluate to see if there's any other medical factors going on. We're in our fifth study. Every study, this happens. People lose weight very quickly. And, you know, in my clinic, people lose weight very quickly. Once they get back into a healthy body weight, the weight stabilizes. And it's also very common that people would get back to the weight that they had as a young adult, early 20s. Uh, another side effect that, that you might uh, enjoy. Uh, and this, this one I, I, I know about from my clinical practice because we, we've not really investigated this in the clinical trials. So, you know, we, we, we see people for the baseline, we get them started on the program, then we see them every month uh, for the first six months. And it's, I'm not the VA, so mostly men, but some ladies. I'd say about 80% of, of our clinic would be men. And we have a lot of guys who'd been in the Iraq war. So a lot of young guys as well. And we, we see them from all sorts of problems. They come in, we've put them on, on our uh, program, I bring them back. And the guys have been now two or three months. And they're, they're, so we have a mix of more senior folks in the group and newbies. And we have about you know 10 vets and their spouses uh, every time. And the spouse... And we ask the spouse and the vet to make the lifestyle change together because it's more successful. Yeah. So the, now this should make you smile. The guys come in, and this usually happens you know, between month two and month four. 
He's got a big, big smile. He goes, Doc, 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 you didn't tell me my love life is going to improve. <laughs> so he's excited because his libido is back. He's having better erections uh, and his love life is better. And he's probably getting along a lot better with his family because his irritability has gone down. And by the way, he's also lost some weight. And he's actually been losing weight all along too. Now, the ladies who've been coming in, same time between two to four months, they are so pleased because they've been losing weight without being hungry. And they're fitting to clothes, you know, and, and they're just feeling really, really, really good. But when you talk with them, they will also say, well, as a matter of fact, you know, I'm more interested in having a little hoo-hoo with my honey. And my libido is better. Uh, and so the ladies lost weight and also had an improvement in their sex life and their uh, periods were much less severe or the hot flashes were much less severe. And, and you know, the, this is generalizing, of course. The men were more concerned about performance than appearance. The ladies are more concerned about appearance than performance. You know, biologically, it probably makes sense that for women, we had to be attractive to get secure a mate. Men had to be strong to secure a mate. So uh, it probably makes sense that the men are most, most concerned about their performance. And we ladies were most concerned about our appearance because it was those concerns that would have the greatest reproductive uh, success in being passed on to your kiddos. Yeah. But everybody's, in general, our, our performance improves as you implement our program and your appearance improves. Uh, your weight gets back to a healthier body weight. Uh, and I'd also say, very consistently, people looked younger. In our uh, program, I'd say it's very consistent. By the end of six months, people consistently look 10 years younger. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And your program really does just sound like a general, uh, almost a how to be responsible with and about food. Yes. You know, we, 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 we talk a lot about food uh, and um, we have strategies for those who want to be uh, a ketogenic eater, those who want to be vegetarian. And we also talk about the other environmental factors that are so important to deal with. Stress, movement, sleep, relationships. How do you get your family to go on this journey with you? How do you get your friends to go on the journey with you and to stop the sabotaging? So our success, it will be much more about learning that whole program, uh, how you manipulate your environment to make it more likely that you can succeed as opposed to more likely that you'll struggle. Yeah, this is a great point. I've, uh, I wanted for so long to be a quote unquote normal person. And I don't mean that as a real insult. I just don't think of myself as, you know, I look at somebody who can have a beer with dinner and I go like, I can't do that. I'm not normal. Or somebody who, yeah, can sit down and have some French fries and not finish them. And that's a normal person. And I'm not normal. Like all these heavy burdens I put on myself of being abnormal. But the reality is I need to think through life in a different way than some people. What, um, what you want to do is 
and we talk a lot about this in my programs, is you want to create the environment where success is more likely than failure. Right. Uh, and, so, and so we help people understand is for you, what does a successful environment look like? And what does an environment that's going to be a constant struggle look like? There's some brilliant uh, work that was done with kids, young children, that would determine how successful that child would be 20 years later. And this is very interesting. You put a marshmallow in front of the kid and say, if you can wait 15 minutes, you'll get two. Well, most five-year-olds can't wait 15 minutes. Right. And what they and the few that could were enormously successful when they were 20, 20 years old. So that, that was pretty interesting. But the next thing that was incredibly more interesting is if you took this little marshmallow in front of this five-year-old and you said, if you can wait 15 minutes, you'll get two. And they just put it behind a screen. So it's still on the table. The kiddo knows it's still on the table, but now they don't have to look at it for the whole 15 minutes. They doubled the number of kids who could wait 15 minutes, and they doubled how long the kid could wait to, before popping it in their mouth. That's brilliant. A brilliant, brilliant observation. Yeah. So with that, and we talk about that a lot, say, so what we can do is think about how can I design my environment to make it more likely that I can be successful? Yeah. And what and this do I have is to take out of my, right? right. What do I have to take out of my line of sight? Yeah. So I don't have to struggle with it. So I don't have to think like, don't eat it, 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 don't eat it. Because that takes a lot of energy to say, don't eat it. It took 15, 20 years before I could go with my wife to do wine tasting. And I would then taste olive oils or whatever else was produced at the wineries. But it required some time and a perspective shift to where it wasn't, it was, I had to design it to be something I could be successful at. You know, and I, I, it helps when I tell people like, if I'm trying to help someone stop cocaine or stop meth or stop alcohol, I don't let them continue to live uh, with other uh, substance abusers. Right. We change their living environment and we change their social environment. And they may never be able to go back to those previous environments. Because they, if they do, they'll be at great, great risk to relapse. And so if we want to change your eating patterns, we want to be as thoughtful as we can to make it easy to eat the foods that you've now said will be good to eat and to make it as hard as possible to definitely eat the foods that you've decided you want to now exclude. Yeah. And then we can have a conversation as, okay, um, what do you want to have on your, this is what I'm going to eat list. And what do I want to put on the, I'm not going to have that anymore list. Yeah. And how do we get it out of your line of sight? This is a very important distinction too, because quitting math is very hard. I, and I was never addicted to math, but I've seen people and that's very hard. Quitting cocaine is very hard. Opiates are very hard. And yet they are easier than a lot of the things we deal with with food because they're not socially acceptable and they're not even legal for the most part and they're not prevalent in the same way that food is. And you don't have your um, 
living environment, your working environment, always saying, have this, have this, have this, have this. Right. So um, acknowledging that we have that challenge and then having the conversation like, okay, it, it will be much more successful if you decide to get these foods that are on your excluded list out of your line of sight. So uh, we go through a, a exercise of, okay, so what have you put on your excluded list? And let them decide. It's not for me to decide. You know, they can decide. I'll explain what, what suggestions I have, but it's going to be up, up to them. And then we can uh, practice the conversations that you may need to have in terms of how I'm going to get this out of my line of sight in the various social environments. Now, one advantage of the terrible pandemic is you probably have fewer social environments where these foods are out there. You may be doing more virtual connections with friends and family. So that may have become easier. Although there certainly are those who've decided to continue those social contacts and have found ways of of continuing that uh, in the age of the coronavirus. So they may still have to figure out how am I going to have that conversation about not wanting to have pie in front of me because I, I won't be able to resist. Yeah. Well, the the one thing that I'm certainly glad that I've dealt with my issues prior to this, because I could foresee how hard it must be right now is the kind of advent of how much you can have delivered now, how how much is accessible just by looking at your phone. When I was a kid, we had Domino's pizza and maybe some Chinese spots, but now anything you can imagine, basically you can have delivered to your house. Well, it depends on where you live. In rural Iowa, it's, it's not Harder. quite that. It's not quite that easy, but it's right. it's getting into more places, even throughout rural Iowa. Right. And you know, I I'm again being a small business owner. I, I'm very uh, mindful for our restaurants and food industries trying to figure out how to survive. And so I, I want them to figure out how to survive as well, because I want to keep my small business people going. Yeah. But, you know, think about having black beans and rice delivered. <laughs> think about right. having sauerkraut or kimchi delivered. Yeah. Think about having some really great books out there. These bookstores are, are struggling, you know, having the grocery store uh, deliver foods for you. So there are ways to get things delivered that will help our small businesses that will also help you stay healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Wallace, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, can I direct people to our website? Yes, please do. Yes. So if you go to terrywalls.com, that's T-E-R-Y, Walls, W-A-H-L-S.com. We have lots of information. We have a really great handout, one-page summary of the Walls diet that we use in our clinics and our clinical trials that will get you started, put it up on your refrigerator. It will inspire you. We have all sorts of programs to help you. So if you want a little bit of support, or if you want a whole lot of support and big coaching, we do that. In January, we will have a five-day challenge to help you get started on learning how to use the Walls Protocol for your healing journey. That will be completely free. So go to terrywalls.com. Be sure and sign up for the newsletter. 
So you'll get an alert when we do that five-day challenge. We've helped thousands and thousands and thousands of people all over the globe. It is so much fun. It'll change your life. Yeah, what a great thing to do for January, too. Yeah, we know we'll we'll all be wanting to start a new year. This will get you started off on the right foot. And I think you'll it'll be lovely. Yeah. That's awesome. Dr. Walls, thank you. You're very welcome. Much right. love to you uh, and your tribe. And you too. And now for the Q&A. So Rand has a question for you, Ethan. He says, here's the problem I'm experiencing. The schedule of work and the routines of life leave me very little time left to lift. So in the short amount of time I have to lift, I find I'm struggling with prioritizing the best exercises. If you personally suddenly had some crazy situation where you could only lift 30 minutes a day, what exercises would you find yourself doing for how many reps and rest? Thanks for the question, Rand. I have found that not quite 30 minutes. I, I can always figure out 45 minutes to an hour. But like my work, when I work, which I still do work occasionally, though um, nothing about the current climate is making work easy, my job will be like a 14-hour day nowhere near a gym and so I'll just go in before and it does make for an incredibly long day and I find that I have better energy before work than I do after work the few times that I've gone to the gym after work they have not been great great uh, days at the gym but when when I when I do have uh, time limitations the first thing to go is cardio and also because I'll spend a lot of time on my feet at work, which is getting steps and stuff like that. So I consider that to be my cardio. And I will do compound lifts. I never go too heavy. I always go in the 8 to 12 rep range. And then I just would do sets of that. And so squats, bench press, lap pull-downs, pull-ups, rows, overhead press, stuff like that. I, I would do big compound movements like that and work bigger muscle groups and, uh, you know, deadlifts, straight leg deadlifts. Those were, those would be the things I would do. I would, I would get rid of, um, arms and probably even shoulders. If I, if, if I had a limitation with time, that's what I would do. Th thank you for the question, Rand. If you have a question you would like me to answer on the podcast, please submit it to AmericanGlutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee, and as always, joined by my chaperone, Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely. <laughs>